when it comes to the good life, uh, all of us would testify that money can't buy happiness, right? But most of us are willing to try, right? And uh, we, we would uh, give it a shot and would testify that it could be pretty fun to try to buy happiness. And uh, so let's just go down that road for a minute as to uh, illustrate, if you had unlimited resources, uh, what would you do with, with all of that money? And uh, I've got a couple of suggestions for you uh, today that you could waste or spend your money on. Uh, one is a place called Manhattan's Old Homestead Steakhouse. I have found out that they will cater your Super Bowl party next weekend for 25 grand. And, uh, and so you guys can just chip in together and uh, go in and get the uh, sirloin covered in truffle shavings and caviar uh, for 25 grand for one Sunday night. You could do that. Uh, how about for the wife, a Swarovski crystal studded vacuum cleaner? $19,000 for that vacuum cleaner. And uh, my, my thought related to that is if you could afford a $19,000 vacuum, you should not be vacuuming. And, uh, and so something for the kids, you know, how, how about a teddy bear? Uh, that teddy bear that they're throwing on the screen is going for $193,000. $193,000 because it's a special anniversary edition to commemorate the 125th anniversary of teddy bears. You remember the Game Boy? Uh, the Nintendo Game Boy, you know, we thought that was old and gone. This is an 18-karat gold diamond-plated screen. Uh, Game Boy for $25,000. You could get your kids a Game Boy for twenty-five grand. Twenty-five grand, and it only plays Tetris. Uh, how about something for Dad? A razor. And uh, you tired of spending 20 bucks buying a package of disposable razors, which is a racket when you think through it, that a razor, disposable razor is about $5. Uh, I mean, somebody's a genius in that whole world. You get the, the handle for $3, but you replace the heads for $5. And, uh, and the way that this plays out. But there is a new uh, invention, Iridium, I think it's called, Razor. It will never, ever get dull. And it can be yours for $100,000. If that's not practical enough, we found an iPhone app for you this week that will keep score in your flag football game for 1000 bucks. iPhone app for $1,000. Uh, that makes the junk my kids buy seem really, really, really cheap. Uh, but eBay... Uh, if you're into eBay, you can go on eBay, and there is a rock uh, that I found this week on eBay. I think it's called a geode. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it's a geode. And this one happens to look like a side of barbecue pork. It's a natural rock that looks exactly like, they say, I don't see that, but exactly like a, a piece of pork. And the buyer or seller is offering that for $1.25 million dollars. To which I say, well, if it makes you happy, right, go for it. And, 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 but it's no longer happiness in our culture. The lie doesn't take us that far. Uh, it takes us further than that, that it's happiness plus stuff. And it's happiness plus everything I want. It's happiness when I want it and how I want it. And, and all of this striving after material things, bottom line, is going to leave us empty. And it will never, ever, ever lead us to the good life that we've been talking about in this series. Uh, because we have defined in our culture the good life by our stuff. By how much and how big and how fast and how expensive. And, and uh, none of that in any level of truth defines the good life. 
But when you go into that world, it becomes this thing that is spinning, spinning, spinning into more and more and more and better and better and better. And I have to have it now. And, and, and what that is is us listening to the voice inside of us, which we call flesh, agreeing with the trumpet on the outside of us from the enemy that is screaming, you deserve this. And here's the bottom line. When you read this book, the, the bottom line is there, there are voices warring for your attention. And that what you and I are in is a spiritual war, and the war is the war of voices. And the question is, who do we listen to? It's really interesting, quite honestly, that this whole idea of a, vo- a war of voices that flood us. This past week, I, I spoke to our uh, Midpoint Singles uh, group on Tuesday night. They did a, a banquet, and, and I spoke uh, to a few hundred, I think. I don't know how many were there. The room was full in, in the chapel. And... and uh, spoke to these single adults, and, and one of the passages that I had them turn to was this passage in Revelation chapter 12, which the picture of Revelation 12 is calling the devil the accuser of the brethren. That's who he is, the accuser. He is accusing the church. He's accusing Christians, and, and that's what he does, and that's his MO, and that's how it plays out. In, in verse 11, it comes back and it says, one of my favorite verses of all the scripture, it says, we beat the lamb, I mean, we beat the enemy, How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And while I'm reading this passage to the single adults, I kind of have that verse memorized. And so I'm reading on while I'm reciting from memory uh, to the single adults. This is how the brain of an ADD person works. And, And so I went on down into verse 15. And here's what verse 15 says. The dragon, which is the devil, tried to drown the woman. The woman represents the church in this passage of scripture. And so here you got the devil trying to drown the church of Jesus Christ. How? With a flood of water. Now watch where the flood of water comes from. The flood of water flowed from his mouth. So what is that? Is it water? No, it's not water. It's words. And words are flowing out of the mouth of the devil like a flood into the lives of believers and the children of God. How do we know it's words? Because it came out of his mouth, for one. Look back at Psalm 69, one of David's psalms. In verse 1, David says to God, Save me, O God, for the flood waters are up to my neck. Now, if you think that David was wandering around the land of Israel and fell in a creek and wrote this prayer to God, you've misunderstood the Scripture. He's saying the flood waters are rising against me, and they are up to my neck. But it's not water, it's words. And these words are coming from this very real enemy. Look at verse 4. Those who hate me without cause. Who is that? It's not your ex. It's the demonic that hates the children of God without cause. Those who hate me without cause outnumber the hairs on my head. My enemies try to destroy me. How? With lies. Are you watching this play out in Scripture? That the enemy, and there's this war of words, and he's trying to flood the lives of believers with words that are lies. And this idea is all through Scripture that the enemy will attack with words. And the words he uses and the voices he uses, they're all lies. Last week we talked about these voices. One from God, the other from the enemy. One calling us to follow him and lead us to life and life more abundant, the good life. And one leading us into a life where he will steal, kill, and and destroy. And the danger is the voice from the enemy will only, that's what the the text literally says, will only lead us to that place of danger. And lead us to that place of destruction. So, So there's some things we ended with last week that need to be sheared off of us as we refer to ourselves as the sheep. 
of God. And that we, he, we need to allow the shepherd to shear this stuff out of our wool and off of us so that we can follow him. We're sheep looking for a shepherd. Let's go back into John 10. And let's study this chapter of Scripture. We've been studying it now for a couple of weeks. We left off last week with our key verse in the whole chapter, verse 10. I just want to back up and read that key verse again to you today. Uh, Verse 10 says, the thief comes only, circle the word only in your Bible, comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what he's saying here is that the world will lie to you. It will tell you it's worth it. It will tell you that pleasure is worth it. But in the end, it leads to destruction. Bottom line, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. That's what sin does in the life of a believer. And the goal is always the same. The destruction of everything you and I hold dear. But Jesus provides another way and a better way. In a way that leads to life, and not just life, but life that is full or abundant life. That phrase in John 10, that they may have life, is the present active tense in the Greek. Here's what that means in the Greek. When it's present active, literally present active subjunctive, that means that it is life that you would have and you would keep on having it. And so if we're having life and we continue to have life and we continue to have life and we continue to have life, you know what we call that in our world? Eternal life, which is the picture that we get out of John chapter 14, verse 6, where John comes back and quotes Jesus as Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and say it, church, I am the life. And he who finds Jesus finds life. And the real God of life is only found, or the real good life, rather, is only found in Jesus Christ. Last week, Jesus said, I am the gate. And we went through the first nine verses of John chapter 10, and we realized really what Jesus was saying is, I'm three gates. I'm the gate to salvation, I'm the gate to protection, and I'm the gate to provision. In the life of a believer, the sheep of God, today he turns the analogy a bit, and now he's put himself in us and with us, and he's saying, I'm the one that's going to lead you to the good life, and I'm the one that's going to lead you through the good life. Let's pick up in verse 11, and let's read it together. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. I told you last week that in the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles that he lists, and there are seven I am statements, seven the number of perfection. The seven miracles are seven signs pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, he uses a word, John uses a word miracle, uh, they're simeon, which means signs. These are seven signs, signposts, pointing you to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. All seven of them showing the divinity and the Godhead of Jesus Christ. The seven I am statements are a big deal in the book of John. What, what does all that represent? It's, well, it's a lot of things. We could do a whole series on just the I am statements in John. We may do that next year. Uh, we've already got this year planned. But the seven I am statements, I think think are referring to Moses. Remember the conversation that Moses had with God and Moses said, what's your name? Who am I going to tell Pharaoh sent me? And God said, I am. That was the answer. I am. And so the bottom line of that is, is I am. Whatever you need, that's what I am. I am God. Where we get the Hebrew words Yahweh and Jehovah. That's the name of God, I am. And what Jesus is doing is he's playing on that. The Jews knew the I am. And so seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am. And he's pointing out to the Jews, that God, the God I am, that's who I am. And one of the things that he says here is that I am the gate And then he comes back in this verse 11 and says, I am the good shepherd. 
The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in the Greek, lays down his life for the sheep, there's an extremely unusual preposition in the Greek there. It's uper, H-U-P-E-R is how you would spell it. You don't find it anywhere else, in the, but it's playing out here. Usually you would have a Greek word anti, A-N-T-I, which means he lays down his life for the sheep, the preposition for. But this word uper means in behalf of, instead of. It's the picture of I am trading my life for their life. And that's what the good shepherd did. He traded his life for our life. Another thing I want you to see in this verse, or in these verses, there's, there's three characters. Four, if you count the sheep. Okay, but we're the sheep. And so I want to show you three characters uh, and, and the way that these three characters interact with the sheep. Now, this is how you need to study Scripture, guys. This week, I, on Thursday morning at 6 a.m., I think, 6.30 a.m., I met with the high school boys that I meet with every other week for breakfast, and, and this week, my 10-year-old boy said, Dad, I'd like to go along. I said, son, I don't think you want to get up, get up and, and go, and he said, no, Dad, I want to go, and so early in the morning, the son was still way down. I went and tapped him in his bed and said, son, do you want to go? He said, yep, I'm going, and he got out of bed, and he got ready, and he went with me, and we went to this breakfast. I don't know. There was four or five high school boys, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys, and we're sitting there having breakfast, and my 10-year-old son is sitting there with us. And this time I decided to bring John 10 along. And so what I did is I printed out the whole chapter on one page for these boys. And so we sat there over breakfast, and I gave them the page, and I said, all right, here's what I want you to do while you eat. I want you to go through this whole chapter of Scripture, and I want you to underline every subject in every sentence one time and every verb twice. You remember that assignment? These boys looked at me and said, I didn't get up early to come to school. I said, yeah, you did. And I began to explain it, which, by the way, the process did not speak well of Broken Arrow Union and Jinx. <laughs> These are high school kids on the same level with my 10-year-old boy. And, and as we walked through this assignment, I mean, they got a couple paragraphs into it, and I thought, we're going to be here until 2.30. And so I said, all right, you get the picture. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn the page over. I want you to read the story, and then I want you to, on the back, I want you to write down every character that you see playing out in this drama, in this chapter of Scripture. And then I want you to write out beside the character what the character did in the story so that you can get an idea of what this story is all about. Now, listen, some of you just read Scripture, but if you don't ever study Scripture, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a lot. And so these boys sat there for 20 minutes eating their bacon and biscuits and gravy and, and, and pancakes, writing out the characters in this story. And we came to the conclusion there are four characters, the sheep being one of them. The other three characters, I want you to see who they are. And, and, and I want to call these three characters today the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is clearly the good shepherd, right? The bad is the hired hand. Look at verse 12. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. Who is the hired hand that Jesus is talking about here? I think he's talking to the Pharisees. When you read this in context, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors of the day that did not care for the sheep in the way that they should. And Jesus is calling these ministers out on that very truth. And he says, you are acting like hired help. You don't love these people. You don't love these sheep. And you don't love this flock like I do. Look at verse 13. And the hired hand runs away because he's working only for money and doesn't really care about the sheep. So if you're taking notes, write out beside the hired hand. What do we see the hired hand does? Three things in this text. Three things. The first one is he'll run. 
When there's trouble coming and the enemy is coming, he runs. The hired hand does. The second thing he does, he abandons the sheep. The third thing he does is, is he's focused on money. It says you're doing this for money, not because you care about the sheep. And so you see three things that this character, not such a good character in the story, uh, does. The ugly character in the story is the wolf. I have a really hard time saying that word for some reason. Mental block my whole life. But this character comes. Who, do, who does he represent and who is he in this story? I think it's the enemy, right? Now, you could say maybe it's the Pharisees, maybe. But, but the truth of the matter is, watch what he did. He attacks the flock. Who attacks the flock? The enemy, right? The accuser of the brethren. The second thing the, the enemy does is he scatters the flock. What's his goal there? His goal is disunity, to get the body fighting against the body, to get the sheep fighting against the sheep where they will abandon one another. He makes us turn on one another and abandon one another. In these times of attack, we need to come together and we need unity. But even more importantly, he attacks those who belong to the shepherd. And we touched on this last week to say the fact that if you think the enemy can't touch the sheep that belong to the good shepherd, you are very, very confused. Naive, you stuck your head in the sand, and you're not paying attention to Scripture. The early chapters of Ezekiel, it talks about where he's attacking these shepherds, and it's not the leaders uh, of, of sheep that he's attacking. Okay, It's not agricultural shepherds that he's attacking. He's attacking the preachers of the day, and, and he says to them, you have whitewashed the wall. And when you study that phrase, whitewashed the wall, literally what he says is you are taking mortar that is untempered, and you are trying to patch the wall with mortar that's no good and that it will not hold. And is it anyone, it's exactly what many pastors do in our culture today. They see the cracks in the foundation of the church but not willing to address it. And when you're not willing to address the crack, you just build on top of it. Eventually the thing is going to fall down. And then he says, and I looked for one who would stand in the wall. And the wall was built around, sometimes 10 feet thick, around the city of Jerusalem. And what would happen in battle is rocks and stones thrown and catapult into the wall, breaking holes into the wall. And what they did in that wall, many times they would build rooms for the poor people into the wall and so you have a room that's eight foot wide on a wall that's 10 feet wide so that portion of the wall is only two feet thick and it would get a hole punched into it and what would have to happen is a shepherd would have to come and he would have to stand in that hole to protect the city the people of God New Testament church from the enemy. Now, today, the church of Jesus Christ is not bricks and mortar, right? It's not this building. It's not this piece of property. It's not any piece of property. It's people, right? The church of Jesus Christ is people today. And sometimes there are holes in the wall in the people of God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands today, but how many times have you seen the devil come into the church through one person? One hole. In the wall. And you know what the pastor's job is? To go stand in that hole and do the battle. Hopefully to restore the person. But whether you can restore the person or not, you got to stop the enemy from coming in to the church. And you watch this playing out. Jesus, look at verse 14, says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Now, here's the third character, the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? Well, number one, he knows his sheep, right? Number two, they know him. Thirdly, 
He lays down his life for his sheep. So now you got the characters playing out in this drama as it unfolds in the story that Jesus is telling. There's a relationship between them. Reflective, by the way, of Jesus Christ's relationship with his father. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. All kinds of confusion around that verse of scripture. The Mormons take it and, and just jump off a cliff with it. What that verse of scripture means is Jesus came to save the whole world. He came after Gentiles too, not just Israel. And what he's saying, he came for Israel. He came into the nation of Israel for the people of Israel. But he's not going to stop there. He's going to go get those who are not Jewish, which is great news for all of us in the room who don't have a hump yarmulke on the back of our head, right? That the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus came for the whole world. What he's saying there is, I'm going to go get Gentiles too. He cares for the whole world. Verse 17, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I, I, I think probably an exclamation point would be a good punctuation there. Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. Now watch what he says next. I sacrifice it voluntarily. Do you know what that means? That means it wasn't the Romans who crucified Jesus. And it wasn't the Jews who crucified Jesus. It was Jesus who crucified Jesus. He voluntarily laid his life down for us. For I have the authority, just in case you're misunderstanding what he's saying, I have the authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. Because that's what God commanded. Now, why is the good shepherd the good shepherd? Because he listens and does the will of the Father. He listens to God, he hears from God, and he acts on it. It's not enough to hear it, and you see this playing out. That's what separates him from the hired hand, by the way. So three truths. Three application truths I want to show you this morning out of these verses of Scripture. Three things we learn about our relationship with Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Number one, the good life starts with an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts there. With an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 14. He knows us even before we know him. I'm the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Now we've talked about this over and over and over again. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I want you to get this and I don't want you to miss this. Bottom line of all of Scripture, the essence of the Christian life is found in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not some theological concept. This is not some philosophy that we write down and we all gather around and agree upon. This is the bottom line of all of Scripture. Intimacy with God, a real living working relationship with a real living person named Jesus Christ. What, what, what is intimacy with God? What does that look like? We've defined intimacy before. And, and if you don't remember, I, I want to tell you, intimacy is to know fully and be fully known with no fear of rejection. That's what intimacy is. You say, well, do I have an intimate relationship with my spouse? Do you know fully? And are you fully known with no fear of rejection? That's intimacy. And last week we said this starts with hearing the voice of God. And I talk to people all the time and say, well, Pastor, I don't think, I don't know if I hear the voice of God. How can I know if I'm hearing the voice of God? And, and I think maybe we've put too, way too big of a mystical spin 
especially in this city, on what it means to hear the voice of God. That it has to be some miraculous vision where I get knocked down and, and, and I look up and see something coming out of heaven, out of the clouds, and, and this voice speaks to me. And when we make that kind of spin on hearing the voice of God, two things happen when we really hear the voice of God. We either dismiss it or, or we miss it. Because we think, well, that was a simple thing. I'm not sure that was the voice of God. I, I, I've told you lots of details about our adoption journey. And adopting uh, Limley. And, and in that journey, when we decided to walk into that world of doing international adoption, we went to Barnes and Noble and we bought this book and, and we started reading it. And then we started talking to people who had adopted internationally. And here's what we found out that one of the first couple of steps in the journey is to pick a country. It's like step two. Like you decide you're going to adopt internationally and then you pick a country. And we were like, well, we don't want to do that this early. We just want to fill out all the paperwork and kind of walk through the journey for a month or two or three or four and, 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 you know, and then just land in a country somewhere and God's going to show us you know, what country we're supposed to adopt from. And in this conversation, we realized you've got to pick it early because all of the paperwork is different for every single country. Even the U.S. side of the paperwork is different for every different international country you would adopt from. And so now we had to pick a country early, early on. And how do you do that? In our minds, it was like saying one country's orphans matter more than other countries' orphans. And how, how do I, we, we're not comfortable with that. So how are we going to pick a country? And so I said, well, let's just, you know, let's just read Scripture. And let's look for a word. And Meredith said, well, then it's going to be Israel or Egypt. <laughs> the mind of a cynic. And, and I said, what? <laughs> and she said, Egypt or Israel, only two countries I know of mentioned in Scripture. And she said, if we're looking for a word from God in Scripture, it's going to be Egypt or Israel. And she said, I know you want to adopt from Egypt, let's just do it. If that's what, I said, that's not what I'm saying. Let's look for a word from God. And, and, and so we, we walked through this journey. Well, at that point, I'm in karate. I'm taking karate with my boys. I am a yellow belt, by the way. <laughs> Bad to the bone. And, and uh, that night in karate, we had some new students come in the karate class. And these new students had their own geese. That's the little costume that they wear, pajamas, the belt. And they come in, which by the way, I have been an advocate for years of ministers wearing scrubs. I think if doctors can get by with that, ministers should get by with that, right? It was a hospital for them. I just need about 12 different sets of scrubs is all I need. I just wear them to work every day. This kid walks in, is in the karate class in front of me, and he's got on a gi, and, and, and he had his own gi. There's a new student in the class, and in seven-inch font, Across the back of his gi, it says Korea. So for an hour and a half in karate class, I am three feet behind a kid who has words, the letters Korea, spelled out on the back of his shirt. I walk out of karate, I said, must be Korea. <laughs> I think God's speaking. We're in it, you know, and there's a new kid in karate. He's got his own gi. It says Korea. Nobody else has a country plastered on the back. He stood right in front. Maybe it was God. And through the whole journey, we ended up feeling like God led us to Guatemala. We went to Guatemala. We spent years and thousands and thousands of dollars on this journey in Guatemala. Hit a dead end. And at the end of that dead end, the day that the attorneys called and said, you will not receive this little girl in Guatemala, I get a call from an acquaintance who played in a band on stages that I used to speak on years ago. 
And she said, I'm sitting here in Ethiopia, or I was in Ethiopia, and this little four-year-old girl crawled up in my lap, and God told me to call you. And through all of the pain and misery and wounds that I'd suffered, I, I said, I'm not sure it's God. I think maybe it's the devil. And she said, no, I think it's God. And I think he wanted me to call you. And I hung up the phone. And I looked at Meredith and I said, this is the conversation I just had. We're standing at our kitchen island. And she said, I don't know. I'm not sure I can do this again. And by the end of the conversation, we were like, we've always said yes in the journeys thus far. Another attorney, another attorney, another attorney. We'll just say yes. Why not? And we went and looked in Scripture, and you know what? Ethiopia is found 41 times in Scripture. <laughs> and the reason I tell you that whole story is because if you try to take the voice of God and make it some mystical thing, altogether mystical and some super spiritual experience, you will miss the voice of God in your life. You've got to know Him in an intimate abiding relationship with Jesus, talking to him and understanding him. And if he talks to you, you've got to be ready to listen and recognize his voice. And that only comes from spending time with him. My children know my whistle. In fact, my whole family knows my whistle. I can whistle really loud. I'm not sure if it's a just, you know, genetic gift or what. But I can whistle really loud. It came in very helpful in youth ministry, and it comes in very helpful in corralling boys. Last Saturday night, we went to Claremore, Oklahoma to the Demolition Derby. Anybody been? Like three. We're going to change that. It is big time fun. I'm getting a car. I'm pretty sure I, I'm getting a car. I got like five sponsors. I only need six. And, and uh, I'm going in as the pastor of disaster. You talk about redneck. It, 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 we had so much fun. I did a wedding, went in my suit, changed to the demolition derby in Claremore, Oklahoma last Saturday. My kids had an incredible time. This guy driving the gremlin was my hero. He got out of that gremlin. He's like six foot six, and he weighed like 390, and he got out of a gremlin. And he's the only one that went really, 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 really fast. But this, this event, we put the helmet, I mean the uh, goggles and the, and the hard hat on Limley and let her hit with a little sledgehammer. The car, you know, that thing, you pay $5, let them hit the car. And she hit it two or three times. And then I said, Limley, what would you think of that? She said, silly. I said, it is really silly. And, and uh, you're right, it's silly. And, and, but my boys wanted to be on the front row. And so we were sitting in these bleachers. And so they're from here to that back door away from me against the rail watching this event. Incredibly loud event. You got to wear earplugs or your ears are hurting really, really bad. Because I got fire shooting out of the engine. I want fire out of my engine. Okay, Steve? And, 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 and uh, I want to can. I'm bringing the Batmobile is what I'm doing. But you just pull that thing up, and it just, you just shoot that guy right out of the arena. And, and, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about this. And, and so in that event, all this noise and all this commotion and all this going on, a couple thousand people in the, in the arena, and my boys in the midst of all this commotion, I said, I need my boys' attention, and I whistled. And Meredith looked at the person beside us and said, watch this. And I whistled, and all the children in that arena, those two boys, they turned and they looked. And I looked at my face and I said, up here. And they came. You know why? I have a relationship with my boys. They know my voice. They even know my whistle. 
And, and what I'm saying to you is, if you're a child of God and you are spending time with God, you got to know His voice. And you got to be intimate with His voice. Some, maybe you're used to just a one-way conversation with God. I would encourage you to hush and to listen to God. One of the greatest things my former pastor taught me was to journal. And in the journaling process, he said, just write at the top of the page, God, I sense today you are speaking to me about, and then just hush and listen. And listen to the voice of God. Question, in a conversation between me and God, who do you think has more to offer? In a conversation between you and God, who, who do you think has more to offer in that conversation? We need to listen. You say, I don't understand this. Listen, we have designed a whole course called Abide, advanced groups, where you learn to look, listen, and live the Word of God and the voice of God. And if you've not been through an Abide group, walk out of here today, go into the hallways, and sign up to go through one of these advanced groups to learn to listen and hear the voice of God. And, and He wants to know you just as intimately as He knows the Father. Look at verse 15. How? how? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's the level of intimacy Jesus wants to have with you. The same relationship He has with the Father he wants to have with you. The second truth is this. God, or the good life, is sustained by abiding with Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus Christ, the closer you are to the Father. Why? They are in a love relationship with each other. And they want to invite you and me to enter into that love relationship they have with each other. And to enter in is to abide in relationship with Jesus Christ. What kind of relationship? Intimate. As intimate as the Father is with the Son. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. And one thing we've learned about sheep, as I've been reading about sheep, is that sheep have to stay close to the shepherd. They depend on the shepherd for protection, for guidance, for food, for everything. And sometimes sheep will stray away from the shepherd, and when they do that, they meet all kinds of danger. And that's the way that plays out. Last week we looked at a parallel passage to John chapter 10 in the Old Testament, Psalm 23. And we found several nuggets of truth there. I want you to go back. And I want to show you some more truth in Psalm 23 as it relates to this lesson uh, of him being uh, the shepherd. And I want to recommend a book to you by an author, last name Keller, called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And this professional shepherd studies and commentates on Psalm 23. It is a great read. And a very, very good book. Psalm 23, verse 1 and 2. Look at 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What Keller tells us in that book about sheep is that sheep usually don't spend a lot of time laying down on their own. They're not naturally restful animals. And in order for them to be able to lie down, they have to be free from fear, free from anxiety, and free from hunger. In other words, they have to be made to feel safe or content. Sounds like a lot like women and sexuality, doesn't it? A man is not going to get distracted in that process, right? When a man wants to be with his wife, there is no distraction great enough. A tornado could hit the other side of the house, and we were on a journey, right? But for a woman, everything has to be right, right? The dishes have to be clean, the house, the kids have to be taken care of. The, you know, I mean, you can be entering that process. I think there's a light on the back porch. Who cares? <laughs> we got plenty of money to leave a light on for a while on the back porch. 
But sheep are like that. And, and what, what this passage is saying is there's only one thing that makes them content. The presence of the shepherd. When a shepherd is with his sheep, they know it, they sense it, they feel it, and it is only then that they relax and will lay down. And when David says, he makes me lie down, there is a lot of truth there. What he's saying is, my shepherd is here and I am content. And I can rest in the presence of my shepherd. Look at verse 2. He leads me beside quiet waters. Do you know that sheep can go months on end without drinking water? I thought that was camels, but, but apparently that's sheep too. That sheep can get all the moisture they need from eating grass early in the morning when the dew is, is heaviest on the ground. And that they can have enough water from the dew to survive all day long. But look what David says. The shepherd leads me. He's not driving them with a whip. He is leading them. He leads me beside quiet waters. Not a raging river. That would frighten the sheep. But still quiet waters, pure waters, great source of water. In other words, the good shepherd isn't content to just let his sheep get enough water. He leads them to abundant water. He leads them to the water of life. He leads them to refreshing water. Where do you find water, water as a sheep? The Word. Ephesians says that we are washed with the water of the Word of God. It's not enough in the mind of a good shepherd for us to have enough. He wants it flooding in us. Why? There is a flood, another kind, coming of words. And the way we battle the words of the enemy that flood into our life is with a flood of the Word of God in our life. And he wants to lead us there. Look at verse 3. He refreshes my soul. One more thing the good shepherd does for us. Look. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And, and I thought sheep were the kind of animal that could be raised anywhere, right, in, in any climate. But they need very specific conditions, quite honestly. And unfortunately, sheep are creatures of habit. And if you leave the sheep alone, they will eat a pasture down to its roots. And if you leave sheep in one field, it's not long until that field is completely dead. And so what the good shepherd does is he knows his sheep and he keeps his sheep on the move. And he guides them along, along the right path into good field and into good pastures. And, and we think as believers that the good life is this settled life with no changes. And if changes come our way and hard times come our way, then something has to be wrong, right? Because we don't want to move around and we don't like change, but God says different. In fact, the good shepherd will move you around. The good shepherd will change things up. The good shepherd will put you in new environments in order to grow you. I, I heard somebody say that you should never go home after work the same way twice, two days in a row, because it keeps you more productive and more creative if you just kind of keep changing things up. I don't know if that's true or not, but what I know is that in my life, the shepherd shakes things up regularly. To keep me in a place where I am growing and to keep me in a place where I am dependent upon him, we need new challenges because that's where green grass is. And those are the right paths that God wants to lead us down. And so we need changes in our lives. Have you ever heard that he's the good shepherd? And if he's the good shepherd and he is leading us, 
We have nothing to fear on those paths. As long as it's making us closer to Jesus and closer to his purpose for our lives, we don't need to fear. And some of you have been sitting on the sidelines of life for a long time. And God's given you a vision. And he's given you a task. And you have not followed through with the last thing God told you to do. And as your pastor today, I just want to say to you, you are empowered to go do it. And to make the changes in your life that God wants to make in, in your life. Oftentimes people come and say, Pastor, or they write me a letter or an email, Pastor, I think the church ought to do, and da-da-da-da-da. You know what my response is? Do it. You're the church, right? When I mean, the church is not buildings, the church is the people. God laid it on your heart. You're the church. Go do what it is that God told you to do. So take your day in and day out and make it purposeful with the good shepherd. And Jesus is offering us good life. All of us today. And it's in an intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. But how, how do we take that for granted? And how does this play in our lives? And this is the third thing I want you to see. How did Jesus obtain that for us? The good life is secured by the sacrifice of Jesus. The good shepherd lays his life down for the flock. He's willing to sacrifice it. In other words, he traded his life for our life. Some people think shepherds that raise sheep are these weak little boys who watch sheep all day and cuddle up with lambs. Couldn't be further from the truth. That, that the shepherds of, of the Middle East are bad dudes. And they protect those sheep. You can find biblical pictures of that all through the Old Testament. David was a shepherd boy. And at 14 or 15 years old, he was killing bears and lions. beast of the field. And the greatest thing our good shepherd did for us was to fight for us. And to lay his life down on our behalf. If you take this tape about Jesus being the good shepherd in John 10 and you rewind it, and turn back a few pages into the Old Testament and you see the stage being set and the need coming to reality for a good shepherd. A lot of truth shed into this passage of Scripture. Flip back to Ezekiel chapter 34. So I don't know if I've ever been to Ezekiel. Well, you will go there today. Just I don't know how to find it. In the front of the Bible, there's a thing called the table of contents. Turn to the table of contents and find the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 34, the need for a good shepherd is playing out. And there's a big difference between the good, the bad, and the hired hand. And in Ezekiel 34, listen what God says through his prophet. Then the message came to me from the Lord. This is the word of God. How many authors in the Bible? One author written by a lot of men, but one author is God. Here comes the word of the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Now, this is not people watching sheep. This is priests. 
These are the religious leaders. These are the pastors of the day. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks. And he lays out this dispute in this passage of scripture against the shepherds and pastor leaders of the day. In other words, the sheep are scattered all over the place because you did not give them the word of God. You take the best from the flock, but you let the flock starve. You don't take care of the weak, the sick, and the injured. So my sheep are scattered and they wander. Remember Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Look at verse 5. And I've switched to the New American Standard here for the, for the rest of these verses because I think it's better here. Verse 5. They were scattered for lack of a what? Throw these verses up on the lower thirds if you would, guys. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field. We talked about that last week. Do you remember what beast of the field represents in Scripture? The demonic. Remember in Genesis 3 it said Satan was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. He's not more crafty than an ox or a cow or even a lion. He's more crafty than all the other fallen angels. He's more crafty than all the other demons. He's the craftiest of all the fallen creatures of God. And what this text is saying is is because you didn't give them the word of God, the sheep are scattered, and now they have become food for the beast of the field, for the demonic. They're being attacked by the enemy because there's no shepherd. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Remember why Jesus said he came? To seek and save the lost. Verse 7, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. As I live, every time God, I love it when God says as I live. How does he live? Forever and ever. You know what he's saying there? This applies This still applies today. As I live, declares the Lord, surely my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field. The flock has become food for the beast of the field. Verse 11, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I myself. This is good. I myself will search for my sheep this is before Jesus came folks this is five or six hundred BC and Jesus is saying I'm coming and I'm not going to leave you alone and I'm going to be the good shepherd watch verse 12 as a shepherd when he is among his sheep What does that mean? I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to put flesh on, and I'm going to walk among the sheep as a shepherd who is among the sheep. So I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. 600 years 
before Jesus hopped up on that cross. Go study the day of the crucifixion in Scripture. Cloudy and gloomy, dark day. This is the Word of God, folks, and it is good. I will find my sheep, he says. I will rescue them. I will abandon the injured and I will strengthen the weak. It's the picture of what Jesus came to do, the good shepherd. And it's not found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's in the prophets. Why? The prophets point to Jesus. you got to hear me. This book is not a book of history. No, it is historically accurate. It is a book for the sheep of God, and it applies to our lives today. And tomorrow morning, you can get up and read Jeremiah or get up and read Ezekiel and God speak to you tomorrow in your Bible reading just like he spoke to the people of that day. It's the Word of God. And it's alive. And it is water for a thirsty soul. And the good shepherd wants to take care of you. He goes down in verse 17 and he begins to go into this dialogue about I will separate the sheep from the goats. Why would he have to do that? Because some got into the fold that aren't really sheep. They really don't know the Lord. But they're in the church. And there's a day coming when he comes back that he will separate the sheep from the goats. And you get the picture of this longing in the heart of the shepherd, Jesus, for relationship with you and with me. And my question today is, do you know him? Do you know him? And last week, I gave you the litmus test found in verses 1 through 9. Do you hear the voice of God? Did you respond to it? Are you intimate with Him? And is He your Lord? And if the answer is no... I'm not going to beat you out the door as a goat. I want to invite you in through the gate. Who is Jesus? To be a sheep. Would you pray with me in all of our environments? Would you bow your head and would you just pray with me this morning? And if today you've never given your life to Jesus... Would you just pray with me right where you're seated? If you're watching on the internet today, would you just pray as you sit in front of your computer? And would you just say, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord. to be my Savior, to be my shepherd, my good shepherd. In the best way that I know how and understand it, I turn my back on my sin, 
And I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. And I want to thank you for saving me. If you just prayed that prayer, it's the wisest thing you've ever done in your life. To give your life to Jesus Christ. But there are others of us who, who, who we already got that settled. But when we get to point two about abiding with Jesus... Abiding just means stay close. Just stay close. And what happens in the life of believers when they don't stay close to the shepherd is the enemy beats them like tom-toms all day long. And if your life is not a life of victory and it's not a life of abiding relationship, he wants to set you free. It is for freedom that he sets us free and he meets us on the real page of life and for some of the sheep today under the sound of my voice the real page of life for you is not a good page and you need to repent of anything and everything that you have allowed to run into your life it's not of God. To turn your back on it and to do a 180 away from it, to turn back to the good shepherd and to say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've tried to fill my life with anything and everything but you. And turn back to the shepherd. He's calling you, come back. And you know what? He's not mad. And he's not waiting to beat you. He, he wants to receive you with arms open wide, just as we are, right where we are. I'm going to open up the altar for us to come and do business with God today. And we're going to sing that song, Just As I Am. You talk about old school. Singing that song this morning reminded me of many, many moments in my life of hearing the voice of God and responding to the voice of God. Of watching men and women respond to the call of God in invitation after invitation. But it also reminded me of many, many invitations where song leaders would sing that song and they'd say, we're going to sing it until somebody comes. And it was an atmosphere of unbelievable resistance. We have a choice today as we sing. Are we going to come just as we are? Or are we going to fight the good shepherd? Father, this is your time. Do with us as you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Scott, you lead us. This altar is open for you to come and do business with the Lord. Church, the Lord wants to take us to new heights. But there's some stuff in the family that he wants to deal with first. Let's deal with him this morning. And you take me just as I am. You love me beyond where I've You raise me
Let's all stand together and sing this.
let that be our cry and confession to you today. Lamb of God, we come. We come just as we are. Father, we thank you that when we come just as we are, we meet you just as you are. Full of grace, full of mercy, full of light, strength, and power. God, as we encounter you today, we pray you change our lives forever. As a body, as a church, Lord, we pray that you would deepen us, you would mature us, and you would grow us. As we walk with you, in Jesus' name we pray. Together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the good shepherd this morning for loving us?